Welcome to Interview and Inspiration. This is Marshall Paris. And this is Joshua Bucio, and we're here today with CEO Roy Robinson and COO George Engelman. We're super excited for y'all to be in our show. They're part of Excipio here in Houston, Texas, a renewable energy company. And thank you so much for being here. Let's get started. No problem. Absolutely. And it's a real pleasure to have you all on. So time just to get to know you all a little bit, just to know you personally, is can you give our audience of what would you say is the most exciting or most memorable or kind of just funnest thing that y'all did whenever y'all were 20 years old and in your 20s? Well, my, my 20s were spent traveling a great deal and uh, enjoying a whole lot of different areas in the U.S. I had numerous jobs ranging everywhere from a waiter to the U.S. Navy to selling jewelry. Uh, the one thing I would say, though, in terms of excitement, that actually was a work activity. I was over in China, and we were doing a survey, and we actually, the survey boat I was on actually sank. Oh. We ran it over on a rock. This is a survey vessel, all high-tech <laughs> stuff, straight over a rock. That wasn't the exciting part. The exciting part was getting rescued by the Chinese Navy, oh. which involved jumping from the lifeboat to a slightly, sm a slightly larger ship, and from the larger ship to a frigate, <laughs> And then from the frigate back down to the little patrol boat before it took us to shore. So that was, uh, you get some interesting and exciting things if you're working offshore. Mm -hmm. George, how about you? Well, I think probably um, most of my 20s I spent at A&M, actually, <laughs> trying to get my engineering degree. But uh, in order to pay for that, I had some uh, cool jobs. Probably the, the best summer job I had was I worked in Alaska uh, doing offshore, doing fishing. And... Um, I knew that you know my career would take me offshore someday mm -hmm. because I was working on ocean engineering program, and um, I'd say that uh, experiencing Alaska. Thank God it was the summertime because <laughs> that was the nice time of year. But uh, we got to see some rough seals, some rough seas, and a lot of seals. <laughs> yeah. Some rough seals. We saw some rough seals. Some rough too, seals. We won't yeah. go into that. Yeah. Seals were brutal. Um, very you know heavy heavy localism. Uh, whales and killer whales and, and, and bald eagles that would literally fly down and snatch the fish right off the deck. So uh, even though they're protected American species, up there they were like crows. And I think the joke was uh, the only thing that tastes better than barbecued killer whale was fried bald eagle. So, uh, but no, Alaska was, Alaska was truly an adventure. It was something I was glad that I was able to do. And it certainly went a long way to... Um, cover my room and board while I finished up my engineering yeah. degree. I mean, these sound like amazing stories from China to Alaska. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about Excipio and like what y'all are working on right now? Well, Excipio Energy we, we was founded three years ago um, by a bunch of ex-offshore oil and gas people. Uh, we came into the industry, sorry, I say came back to the industry because all of us had kind of looked into offshore renewables when we first got out of school which, by way of disclosure, I graduated A&M in 89. Um, <laughs> you guys will get there. <laughs> and then uh, what happened after that, um, when we decided to form Excipio and went into the renewables, we noticed that people tended to think in isolation. So you had the people who think of offshore wind, then you had the guys who worked in offshore wave energy and the guys who worked in offshore tidal energy, and then you had this little group over here that's considered a cult that works in OTEC, 
you know, it's offshore uh, thermal energy conversion, mm -hmm. uh, which is, it, it's the, always been the, the energy of the future since it was invented in 1889. So mm -hmm. it's, it's been around a while. But very few, or, or none really, looked at it as a whole. None of them considered offshore energy as, an, as, a, as a group. Mm -hmm. They were all focused on one energy. And so what we've, we took a different tack because of our backgrounds. If you're going to build a floating platform or a platform of any kind in the, in the ocean, you want to pull as much energy and as much value out of it as you can. So we would, it was a natural thing for us to combine them all and we looked around and really nobody was doing it effectively. There are other companies out there that have what they call hybrid platforms, which are wind and wave or wind and current, but they tend to be focused on one one technology with something else strapped on. So how did you actually, like, what was your secret recipe in order to actually mix it together without saying too much that your competition might be able to pick up? How did you actually overcome some of those difficulties of actually being able to combine them? Well, um, I mean, like Roy had said, we, we looked at individual technologies. And so when we, you know, Roy and I, you know, we go back, you know, almost 30 years. You know, we went to, actually went to school together at AM. So uh, having been through, you know, a full, you know, couple of decades of, of oil and gas offshore careers, uh, coming back together, and Roy mentioned renewable energy. And I said, you know, when I was, when I was at AM, I actually did you know, research on that. So I said, yeah, I know all about it. It's going to be this or that or this technology or that technology, etc. And very much it was a silo mentality. But, you know, when we started to get into it and dip our toe in and I sort of assessed, you know, well, it's been 30 years since I've looked at this. Where's the state of the art evolved to today? And recognized that a lot of the authors, people that I was subject to my research back when I was an undergrad, we're still doing it today and hadn't really progressed much in three decades. In fact, the only thing that really changed is they went from master's students to heads of departments in the same universities and really hadn't moved on at all. Roy and I dug into a few specific technologies and recognized pretty quickly that no technology by itself can stand alone and be technically and economically viable. Mm -hmm. And that the largest part of the cost is really tied to having to establish a foundation in the ocean, which is incredibly expensive. And so if you're going to purchase that footprint in the way of pilings and structures and et cetera, to put one widget on it is a waste, mm -hmm. is a waste of money. So we realized that the more you could populate a footprint with the more systems uh, capable of harvesting and capturing energy, that there's a lot of mechanisms out there in addition to just the wind or just the waves, but mm -hmm. it's all there. It's all there all and, and, and multiplying technologies and synergizing on the same piece of civil construction mm -hmm. uh, to get the most dollars for your piling cost was, was really the way but to go. We came to the conclusion fairly quickly because if you, a lot of the people who have gone into this industry, and by that I mean into the offshore renewables industry, as you said, either came from academia or were, were brought into it to work on one of these companies. Mm -hmm. Very few people in it at the time anyway, that's, that's changed even in the three years we've been in, had offshore experience. They've never actually built anything big in the ocean. So what companies do you mean by, like, they were either professors or they were in companies? Are you saying, like, oil and gas companies? Or no, no, these are, these are the renewable energy companies. Mm -hmm. the, the renewable energy, the, the offshore oil and gas companies dabbled in renewables for a while. When the price of oil went to mm -hmm. 100, obviously, that kind of took a back burner. Definitely. Um, when it dropped again in 216, it, they started thinking about going back into it. 
Um, and now offshore wind has been growing as an industry. It's been growing 33% year on year since 2011. Oh, wow. I mean, it, it, the, the curve is like this. Um, and that's, that's shallow water wind. That is, at least in our estimation, the least efficient form. Once they get into deep water wind and floating wind systems, it will become one of the prime energy sources on the planet. Um, and that's where we're focused on is on the deep water and the floating. Deep water meaning anything over 100 meters because that's really the floating systems. So, the, but the companies that, that we're talking about here that we've studied were basically startups that had a piece of intellectual property for a particular energy conversion machine that worked on the waves or that worked in the flowing tide or something to that effect. Mm -hmm. And you know they were running on on seed money and the typical sort of venture capital almost all, almost all of it, model. It, it, most of it, almost all of this development took place in Europe, mm. and, and it wasn't so much on venture capital. It was almost entirely on the backs of the EU financing, or, it was or individual actually government, it's government financing. And it's not even like they do it in the states. This was here's your ten million dollars. Go do what you want. Yeah, pretty mm. much. It wasn't. I'm exaggerating, obviously, yeah, but it was. Course. It's not like here. Here, I, I jokingly say that if I really wanted to go. You know, pursue any government money. Mm -hmm. Besides the fact that I would only get a little bit of money out of them, I'd have to hire three more people to take care of the paperwork <laughs> that would be required. Extremely hard to get. So, so in, in Europe, what is a, a government-funded entity to go mm -hmm. forward, which is kind of a healthy budget to work with and reliable? In the states, that that small startup model would have to rely upon venture capital type. Mm -hmm funding and not government funding because the mechanism for that in the U.S. is just not apples and apples and like Roy said, it's so red tape ridden that it's like you don't even want to go there and if you're developing something especially clever, everything you determine while spending the government's money becomes public domain information so there goes You can't your, have any secrets. You can't. It's, it's not, that's not an entirely accurate statement. Mm -hmm. you, I mean, you can, you can keep, if it's uh, a commercial secret, then you, you can patents. file for it. You can it, you can try to protect it. You have to have patents on it, and yet there's a few other things. But in general, mm -hmm. you have to be a lot more open about it than they do in Europe. Um, and like I say, in, in in Europe, some of the things that get funded in Europe, and that's been good and bad. They've they've done a great job of developing a lot mm -hmm. of technology, but some of it has not developed in what we would consider the most efficient way. In part because they did it with what they had, to, what they could get to hand, not the best way to do it. If you want to put it in quotes. So yeah. how did you actually do it differently then, and how did you all? Well, we come from like, we came from oil and gas, so we mm -hmm. we know how to build offshore structures and how to build <clears throat> floating structures. And the fact things that are patently obvious to us from doing that mm -hmm. from experience may not be so obvious to somebody else. Uh, now, why hasn't somebody else done exactly what we're doing? I don't know. <laughs> You'd have to ask that. Yeah. Uh, I don't tell you what we did. And it, to, uh, to me, it was almost immediately obvious to not focus on one technology. I can tell you that uh, the, the state of the technology, the development on things like wave energy devices and currents or tidal mm -hmm. devices is very good. The devices themselves are excellent. The problem is, is that it's too expensive to install them where they want to use them. And by themselves, if you try to put them out in a floating system, they, they're not cost effective. Mm -hmm. That's where it comes in that the floating wind by itself will actually make money. <clears throat> and then if you are building a floating structure, these guys put nine, nine or 10,000 tons of ballast in the bottom to, to balance it out. Mm -hmm. As an offshore oil and gas guy, if I, the last thing I'm going to do is put 10,000 tons of just dead weight. I'm going to put stuff on there that makes me money. Exactly. So I'm going to replace 5,000 tons of that 9,000 with stuff that makes mm -hmm. money. So you're really pulling out all of the inefficiencies yeah. of 
just having just one structure, and you're taking all of the disadvantages and turning them actually into advantages. We've actually taken it a little bit further than that, um, in the sense of it's not quite as simple as just strapping things on. Oh, of course. People have tried that, mm -hmm. and, and the people who have tried it again, because I didn't come from a development background, mm -hmm. when it didn't work, they went, oh, that just doesn't work. <laughs> and we're like, we can, we can look at what they did and went, yep, that wasn't going to work. So for y'all in general, what do you think was like the biggest hardships that y'all faced in order to well, that's do easy. all the money, money, money? Anytime you're starting up a business, it, 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 getting the starting capital is not the hard part. It's getting the continuing capital. That's mm -hmm. the the interesting. So trick. and like in the U.S., I know you mentioned like it's a lot harder to get it from the government. Is it like here's like angel investors, or what do you mean? Like how do you get people to continue giving you the money? Um. That's a, that's a difficult one to say, and it depends on what you're trying to do. Our case is even harder because we're not, we depend on other people's IP for the most part. We have a couple of patents on that we're working on and one that we have filed that integrates other people's IP. Mm -hmm. All of the things in our particular platform are proven by other people. And so we're acting as, it's just the oil companies. Mm -hmm. uh, the example I usually use is we want to be Exxon, not FMC. Okay. Uh, we, we're not, we're not yeah, trying yeah, to be yeah. an equipment supplier. We're mm -hmm. trying to be a power company. The power company. I see. Yeah. That makes sense. That's, okay, so that's actually very interesting. You're actually taking a very different approach of instead yes. of other renewable energy sources, they're actually just providing it to the Exxon as they're dabbling in the renewable energies and whatnot. You're actually becoming the energy company yourselves. I, yeah, I, I became an engineer because I'm lazy. <laughs> I, I don't like, to, I like other people to do stuff and I don't have to. <laughs> And so if, if there's other people who have done all this great work out there, I'm quite happy to, to, to give them credit for it, pay them for it, and then take Easy. it and integrate it and put it on a platform. They're happy to sell it because that's what they wanted to do, mm. and I'm happy to buy it, and, and that makes both of us happy. Um, and how, how, how was your process on doing that? I know, like, as a business and you have the IP of other companies, mm -hmm. do you just approach them? Like, you find the patent, you know this is the owner, you reach them out? I've got, uh, we've got letters from them. We haven't built, remember, Bearing in mind that we haven't built one of these things yet, mm -hmm. um, we have a, a letters of intent to form a consortium from 12 different companies. Okay. But again, these companies all have an interest. Most companies who build things don't want to be a power company, and most power companies don't want to build things. Mm -hmm. um, one difference between George and I and some of these others is that he and I both have the practical experience to both design it and take it and run it and develop it, because that's what we did for the oil and gas companies. We, we integrated other people's equipment there. It's the same thing. So, Mr. Engelman, you're actually in charge of the operations of this organization. So, surely there's processes and systems that you have to set up in order that y'all can have checks on the system. What processes do you actually put in place to know what's going on in your organization? Well, right now, uh, all that would be in anticipation of actually having an organization. Yeah, but we're very disorganized. But there's there's a couple of facets to it. I mean, there's there's the physical fabric of of the company in terms of uh, the infrastructure, whether it be the office space and the daily operating footprint, or whether it be uh, what our assets would be offshore, mm -hmm. and so then that's around you know operations and maintenance of the revenue stream. Um, there's equipping both of those sites you know, with, with the human capital, mm -hmm. right? And then, uh, and all the frameworks that go around, you know, managing, managing people. So uh, whether it be for, you know, competency development type, you know, uh, recruiting, onboarding, you know, establishing a talent pipeline, mm -hmm. 
uh, you know, to, to feed the to feed this line of business, recognizing that there's going to be staff turnover. Uh, maybe we're in route to the industry, and we train and release. Mm -hmm. You know, how, how it tends, <laughs> how it tends to be. Uh, don't, ask over, don't ask where we put the tank. Using, using the engineering uh, offshore engineering analogs that exist in oil and gas. There's a lot of people that have gone through some of the top engineering offshore engineering companies in Houston get trained up just enough, and then, boof, they go off and work for an oil company, you know, and then, um, but... Yeah, I think it's a nice springboard to right. other companies. So, you know, we could be that. Um, you know, I spent uh, years working for one of the major oil companies, and their reputation was they do it all the work themselves in-house and don't farm it out, which meant that our actual project engineers and project managers were very capable to be player coach. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, so as far as the from an operational aspect, um, you know, you you want to you want to basically groom your talent to foster the, the, the sort of the business. You mm -hmm. know, the business would be to produce electricity in an offshore environment using renewable energy systems, and certainly in that space, you know, integrity management is key in, in a maintenance-driven uh, culture, uh, which is. We anticipate to be highly logistically driven mm -hmm. in access to the sites, uh, ha having to overcome the risks associated with the weather and mm -hmm. the motions of the ocean, and trying to go out there and actually do that work and do it safely. Mm -hmm. um, so is that something that y'all, whenever you're hiring people, you really focus on that? Or how do you make sure that you have the safety, that you have all of the logistics covered? You don't have to hire, you don't hire safe people. Um, safety in a in a this industry or in any industry for that matter comes from the top and the examples that are set. Um, I've never had a trouble. I've never had anybody hurt on a site I was responsible for twenty five years. Wow. Um, I've had I've been on jobs where people have been hurt. Don't get me wrong. And I've been on in on projects where people got hurt around me. But I, that I, that's only usually because I had no control over. Mm -hmm. Sometimes in a couple of cases I even tried to stop the activity that. So assurance frameworks and then uh, controls and verification and uh, real-time surveillance and then how all that, how all that is um, operationalized. Yeah, and then the proactivity index around training people in advance of ever putting them into uh, a work task or a work site situation where they would ever be exposed to the hazard that their level of awareness has to be heightened around what are the risks and how do you, what do we do to manage that and ensure that the right number of, of barriers are in place between you and the potential problem so mm -hmm. that regardless of which way things could go. Anything wrong happens, you've got right. to so That's one thing that we've learned in the uh, deep water offshore oil and gas mm -hmm. business was that contingency planning and, and scenario generation around what could go wrong and then going with your veritable toolbox, you know, fully packed mm -hmm. and ready because once you're 100 miles offshore, you're a long way away from anything. Yeah, exactly. So whether it's because and also of the... Under, you know, also understanding that even no matter how much of the scenario planning you've done and how prepared you are, when you're working in the ocean, changes. the stuff that you have not planned on or have scenarioed out will happen. Mm -hmm. Guaranteed. Yeah, that's that. I think that's where the phrase was coined. It happens. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's super hard to find. So where it was gonna the, the you know the case the the case for urgency and the motivation around you know uh, prudent planning. You know, it's it's clear. It's really not even an argument. It's just yeah, this is the way that it is. This is the way we have to do it. And the bottom line is that a unit goes offline and we lose how many megawatts of generation per day. You know, and then it says well. 
yeah, it's the bottom, it's bottom line driven, mm -hmm. but really, you don't want anyone to be hurt as well. Yeah. And you want everything to be right. We don't. We don't. We don't mm -hmm. want to. We don't want to find ourselves on CNN. We don't want yeah. to become, you know, known celebrities for because that. something went wrong. Yeah. You'd rather be known yeah. celebrities for changing the world. world. Yeah. yeah. We don't want the first one to have a, a turbine blade go flying through a cruise ship. No, that would not be good. Definitely not good. I kind of wanted to bring it back a little bit. So. I mean, y'all, A&M Aggies, uh, just like in college in general. Sea Aggies, we should take it down. Sea Aggies. What would you do differently now with your experience that you have now? Like, if you were in college at the moment, would okay. you study something different? I, let, let me clarify this mm -hmm. with a little bit of, of, of anecdotal story. I have four different universities on my eight-year, four-year college degree, the last <laughs> one of which was Texas A&M. Um, I, I always wanted to be a marine engineer, was going to be a marine engineer, and that never changed. That was the one constant through all of this. Mm -hmm. So in terms of how do you focus or what, what do you get out of the school, you get out of the school whatever you want. Mm -hmm. That's up to you. That's not up to the school. Well, my, my take on that one is that, um, you know, as we struggled through, yeah, we were, you know, I was in the company of, of in Galveston of marine biologists as well as marine business majors. And everybody had a different take on their motivation of why to study for an exam. And some guys would say, I'm not going to bother because I'll slide by. It's just a piece of paper. Once it's on the wall, it doesn't show your GPA. And I'm only going to use 10% of this in my job anyway. What I learned was that when my first day on the job was that I actually pulled out. It was 110% of my college catalog right there on the first assignment that crossed my desk. And if I had the opportunity to do it any differently than I had done it, I wouldn't have done it any differently at all. I think I did the right thing. Um, I studied everything that I could. I absorbed it like a sponge. Some of it I liked so much I took two and three times. <laughs> <laughs> Just to make sure that you got all of it. Yeah, you know, differential <laughs> equations is one of those classes. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so, that was actually one of my favorites. But, you know, <laughs> you know, in, 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 the, in, the, uh, in the pursuit of perfection, you know, which was actually realistically unachievable, uh, I would like to think, though, that we, we did achieve excellence anyway. Mm -hmm. So, um, but point being is, would I have done it any differently? I think I studied the right thing for what I'm doing today. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I just thank God that I found myself where I was at the time yeah. and that the opportunity that was put before me, I was smart enough in the moment to follow that track, and it's actually worked out. I entered school in 86 when they said there's no more offshore oil and gas business. That was the last time the oil price crashed. Man. And they said you probably won't be able to finish your catalog if you enter this program because it's geared for offshore engineering. I said, that's okay, I'll design surfboards or something. <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I did actually. So uh, point being that I did the right thing. I think I did the right thing. Yeah, I don't have any, I have zero regrets on the path that I took. Mm -hmm. um, it was not a linear path by any stretch of the imagination. Uh, in fact, I actually have a, a talk that I give. Like the Energy Institute High School is something that we work with sometimes. Yes, I know some people that actually graduated from that. Yeah. And I, I went down there and gave them a talk about what I call the nonlinear progression of your mm -hmm. career. I didn't plan on going into oil and gas or working as a pipeline engineer. Um, but I had always wanted to be a marine engineer, always wanted to build stuff in the ocean since I was about 14. Mm -hmm. That never changed. So I wasn't concerned that I was kind of taking a long time to get there. I was paying my own way. So one thing that set me apart when I was at A&M Galveston was my last semester when all the other seniors had like, you know, six credit hours left they had to do. I was taking 25 credit hours Ooh, in that semester. Counting to kind of two of them were projects. Uh, one was about NASA and one was mm -hmm. uh, a, a oh, physics really? one on campus. Mm -hmm. 
Um, because if you're paying your own way, you're going to try to get as much out of it as you can. All of that stuff comes back to you. And the other thing, the other point I'll make about regarding education is, I don't stop. Um, I, I got my MBA in 2005, 2007. Um, I just got done taking an ad course because I had to for my PMI and PMP. But this this whole exercise that he and I have been doing over the last three years with Excipio, there are very, very few people in the world who can talk about all the different forms of renewable energy to the level that the Excipio team can. And also to be able to connect it all together. Yeah. To make one big thing. But we can do that because of the very background mm -hmm. and because of the because you took those extra courses and because you, you broadened out. Um, yeah, it's never too late and you're never too old and the stuff advances, yeah. But yeah. then you just keep up. Absolutely. And unfortunately we are out of time. That's but thank you so much for coming. Yeah. yeah, I interviewed your inspiration. Hope you definitely got some great tips. We know we did. Uh, definitely the ones I really got of keep on going and never stop uh, learning. Uh, thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Thanks. From everyone here at Interviewing Inspiration, we'd like to say thank you for all of our listeners and all of the people who have supported us. We'd also like to say thank you for the people in Interviewing Inspiration who has made this possible. Harshva Adani, our co-owner and producer, Matthew Regali, the head of business development and operations, Avin Passoir, the creative director, Matthew Martinez, the business and technical advisor, We'd also like to give a special thank you to Mark LaCour for helping us get started up. He's actually got some podcasts of his own. Go check them out. They're about oil and gas, and they're actually really great. In addition, Cameron Turin, the creator of our music for this podcast, and everyone who has come on the show to be interviewed and share their knowledge. Thank you.